Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness, and every week I sit down for a gorgeous conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. On today's episode, I'm joined by Professor Gabe Rosenberg, where I ask him, what does farming have to do with gender and sexuality? Welcome to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. I am so excited for today's episode because it is mind-blowing. It is so interesting. Let's get to it. Welcome to the show, Gabe Rosenberg, who is an associate professor of gender, sexuality, and feminist studies, yes, you, and history at Duke University. He researches how gender, sexuality, and the global food system connect through history and today. So first of all, welcome, Gabe. How are you? I'm doing great. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for having me. So I, I first had Gabe on Twitter. Then we got to do a project together for Getting Curious, the TV show that did not get to make it all the way to air. Because really, your whole scene could be its own series. You study the most fascinating, complex, interconnected issues. And I learned so much from the time that we spent together And I am also a queer person who comes from rural America. I grew up literally, I mean, for like five years of my life, I was like literally adjacent to a corn field slash sometimes soybean field, you know, with the whole alternating thing and cow farms and pig farms. And so the, the, the idea of what like a farmer person and what city people are is something that has like very much affected my outlook on life very early on. And also this idea of like the farmer and the farmer's wife. These are ideas and stereotypes that are really driven into your mind when you come up in rural America. You think about how we learn about sex via like barnyard animals and the 4-H club. And so where do people's minds go when we first start to think about this topic and the connection between gender and farming and why? I think that immediately the iconic image that's going to jump into a lot of people's minds as we talk about this is the Grant Wood painting American Gothic, right? Where we've got the farmer with the pitchfork and the person who's next to him that a lot of people assume is uh, his wife. That's contested. I don't actually know. Maybe it might be his sister or something like that. But that's, that's the image, right? The image is that farming is sort of done on what we would call like the small family farm, that that's like the classic or the traditional way of organizing life in rural America. And that rural Americans um, have family structures and have social mores and have sort of assumptions about gender and sexuality, which are traditional, which are conservative, which are the way things used to be. And even in in a phrase that we we probably have heard a lot, like um, the heartland or something like that, the sort of assumption that like rural America is what the world used to be like before things kind of got busy, got modern, got urbanized. So take us back. Can you set the scene for us with the history of U.S. farming? What is the history of farming in the U.S.? You have to go back long before Europeans ever arrived in the United States because, of course, indigenous peoples lived In North America, they lived in the territories that would become the United States for thousands and thousands of years before Europeans arrived. And they practiced agriculture. And that agriculture, in fact, worked very, very well in most cases in the environmental sort of context that was developed. It operated very, very differently from European agriculture and from the agriculture that we know today. And so there's a really profound transformation, not just in like how food is produced, but also actually in in the environment as a result of colonization and as the result of of Europeans entering into the scene. They're they're radically changing the landscape. And with it, they're also displacing indigenous ways of, of, um, of being on land and producing food, which is to say that they're uprooting indigenous agriculture. That actually has a has a its most profound consequences in some ways in how gender relates to agriculture, because in fact, indigenous populations had very, very different ways of organizing agriculture um, in terms of gender divisions of labor. We ended up getting to learn a little bit about that on Getting Curious, the TV show. We also learned about some of the ways that the disruption of food for Native Americans was so pervasive um, throughout the creation of the United States. So, how does like the displacement by white colonials into like the expansion of rural farms solidify 
these gender roles that we kind of adhere to today? We associate um, today farming as um, a form of, of labor that is usually done by men. For many indigenous peoples, um, that just wasn't the case, um, that they tended to have uh, gender sex systems that were, were much more complicated, were not necessarily binary, um, and that when they intersected with agricultural labor, it was usually the case um, that that women were, were doing a, a large amount of that labor, that in fact, they were the primary laborers, which um, from a global perspective, by the way, and I would note this, um, continues to be true around the world. Um, that a lot of a lot of people um, outside of the United States and outside of the global north um, still operate uh, with this kind of gender division of labor. That that agricultural labor is often uh, women's work, so to speak. Um, and it's uh, it's European colonization that comes in and uproots that system with a very very different organization of labor, and it's an organization of labor that's primarily. Uh, sort of oriented towards producing agricultural commodities for for the market and for that labor to be associated uh, with a male head of household. So a man who is the head of the household, which is to say the farmer. Uh, and there's also another word that goes in here, which is the husband. Uh, and we can we can talk about that because that's a word that has a really intriguing etymology. Now I want to be very clear, like Certainly in the colonial period and into the 19th century and into the 20th century, in fact, like women were still doing a tremendous amount of important labor for the household that was producing value. But the primary question of who controlled agriculture and who was responsible for agriculture, who was the boss of agriculture, so to speak, shifted from an organization that was largely uh, matriarchal in some senses to one that was patriarchal. So what does husband mean? What's the entomology of husband? We think of like husband pairs with wife, right? So you have a husband and you have a wife. Um, but in fact, those words don't sound anything alike. So the, the actual sort of like original pair of wife um, from Old English is uh, ver, so ver and wife. Um, and, and that just means essentially uh, the Old English terms for man and woman. A husband um, is, an, is an older term that, that comes... I believe from from Norse, and it it's a, a combination of two terms that means essentially like the holder of of the farm. Um, it's the head of the farm. Um, it, it means uh, the master of the dwelling. But but generally speaking, um, the the root of of the the second syllable there, um, bund, is bundi, and that's the tiller or the cultivator. And so conceptually, mm-hmm. what a husband is is he's the guy who's like in charge of the farming. And uh. so when people say, you know, they're, they're at a party and they're like, this is my husband, Todd. Um, they don't know it, but, but they're actually using a word that has an agricultural sort of origin. And that, that means this guy, Todd, even though maybe he's an accountant or something like that, um, happens to be the guy who's the head of the farm. Uh, we're, we're still sort of like stuck in that language. And, in a real sense, what it meant was that the husband was the figure um, who was responsible for organizing and bossing around people as far as um, controlling reproduction was concerned. And that's really what it meant to be a husband in that sense. Have you been watching The Gilded Age? Sorry, I have. Huh? I have. Yes. yes. Okay. So, oh, my yes. Yeah, me too. I'm like, work, honey. I feel like I'm like really into it. I, as a historian, are you like obsessed or are you like, oh, you could have gone deeper? I mean... Well, you got to be careful. Historians are such nerds. We always because I am fucking obsessed. I am like so obsessed. I am like harping it up with like a fucking. I just I I missed Downton so bad that I'm just like ah oh, get in my belly. I really like it. Oh, I I love it. I absolutely adore it. But but it could also it could go deeper. But then I feel like we're all like elbow deep in shit right now. So you know. It, but I agree. But so so. But I think about like that's 1880. You see so much sexism in just in a lot of the interactions at play. This idea that, you know, men are going to be more away from the house. Women are going to be more in the house. Yeah. And and in the 19th century in the United States, it's heavily attached to what gets called kind of Republican ideology of separate spheres. And the notion here is that men are responsible for participating in public life and uh 
sort of organizing the economy, uh, being men of men of finance or men of business, all of these questions of economy, that's that's the man's responsibility. And then public affairs, running the government, that's what men are supposed to do. And then women are supposed to be responsible for um, the home and for domesticity and the kind of moral education of children that happens there. That's that's the ideology. And you want to be very, very kind of like careful about that, right? Because that's a, that's a dominant ideology. Um, it's very obvious, and you would know this from watching Gilded Age, of course, is that like not everyone has access to that. They don't have material access to that. Um, that's obviously their, the conditions uh, that they find themselves in terms of their class, in terms of their race, um, in, in terms of their embodiment. All of these things are going to mediate their access to that kind of ideological space. And so for most people, the reality is much more complicated. Um, many women, certainly many poor women, um, many black women in the 19th century, um, don't have really the possibility of, of kind of indulging this, this separate sphere's ideology. Um, they have to be out there working. Um, they aren't, they aren't going to be compensated, um, uh, as, as they probably deserve and as, um, their labor really is valued, but, but they are out there and they're, they're earning money for their households. Um, that plays out specifically in how, how sort of like most farms in the North work. And I want to be very clear. This is kind of important. This is like, this is Northern agricultural ideology. Um, this is what happens um, when you don't have like uh, a slave system in place. The slave system in the South really, really changes the story with regards to, to how gender and sex are going to operate. Um, but as far as Northern far farms are concerned, you have a kind of separation that is sort of like spatial. Um, and women are responsible for the actual physical environs of the home. Um, conceptually, right? That's the ideological sort of like perspective of it. And then anything that's kind of like proximate to the home. So like gardening, um, dairy work frequently, uh, poultry work. Those are things uh, that may also be coded as women's work. Whereas men's work is going to be further out into the field and it's going to be concerned with the production of these like staple commodities for the market. Um, but the reality is, is that like in the United States at this time, like labor is is really expensive, and so there's a there's a also just sort of like an imperative to make do. So so at, at moments of like peak labor demand, um, everybody's got to work. People have got to they've they've got to make do, right? They've got to they've got to actually just sort of like figure out how to do it, and that means that women are working in the fields very frequently, and it means that like sometimes Pa is mending his own socks and cooking his own dinner. So what, what developments lead to these gender roles starting to change? There's a strong motive to be able to figure out um, how to sort of like reduce the amount of labor that's necessary to produce agricultural commodities. There's a strong economic incentive to do that. Um, there are a lot of introduction of mechanical implements, um, improved uh, sort of seed varieties. And all this does is like, in some senses, it, it like makes farming over the course of the 19th century more and more productive. Um, mm. and, and that creates a lot of um, like economic pressure that also creates farm consolidation. And all of these farmers that we're describing increasingly get knit into uh, first regional, then national, then global networks of exchange through things like the construction of the railroads. Remember our... Mm. our uh, our super rich guy in uh, Gilded Ages, of course, is like a rail baron. And this is this is not a coincidence, right? So one thing to remember about the rails, and this is like a really important lesson for understanding how agriculture works in the United States. The rails go in not to like connect farms that were already there to other markets, but to make it possible for people to go to places where there weren't farms before, where there may in fact have been native populations that were engaged in, in other forms of agriculture, but they weren't doing this kind of market-oriented agriculture for the most part, and to settle those places, right? And so that's the process that happens roughly between about 1860 18, and 1890. And then in the 1890s into the 1900s, um, you start to see this, this kind of like consolidation and competition. Um, and, and then increasingly, you need fewer people in, in rural America, and they start migrating um, into, uh, into cities. And that's a process that happens really over the course of the entirety of the 20th century. 
Um, the United States uh, sort of sees a big explosion in number of farms after the Civil War. And then after World War II, it really, really tanks in terms of the total number of farms. And there's a similar sort of statement that like the majority of Americans are born in the countryside until until the 1920s and 1930s. And then there's uh, a steady kind of depopulation that happens after World War II. Those changes also have pretty remarkable impacts on, on how gender and sexuality operate in rural spaces, though. Okay, yes. How is agriculture about the organization of non-human reproduction for human purposes? It's a great question. Um, and that is my very, very eclectic and, and I would say not universally accepted definition of what agriculture is. That's my that's like how I define agriculture. So hmm. it may be the reproduction of a plant, right? So a corn plant a soybean plant. Um, it may be the reproduction of a pig or a cow or a chicken or a goat. But fundamentally, the process that we're kind of describing um, is the, the, the process of creating life, managing it, making sure that it reproduces, and then harvesting the sort of excess of that, of that reproduction. And it clarifies a lot of the ways in which Agriculture is going to connect to how humans conceptualize and organize of human gender and sexuality because we get a lot of practice in organizing reproduction by intervening in the reproduction of plants and animals. I remember being very young and going to farms for like the 4-H club and like holding baby pigs. You know, you learn about the birds and the bees. You learn about, you know, the circle of life. Um, and, and these are very young ages, I think, to be kind of like, you know, when we say, like, don't push about, like, your your gay agenda on children. But it's like, but I was four, you know, in preschool and a farm holding a pig that was going to be fucking butchered and, like, taken out away from its, like, crying mom. Like, we're indoctrinated in these ways of, like, straighthood and, like, reproduction you know, very early. And that was kind of one of those things where I was thinking about like, well, how it's like old McDonald had a farm, honey. And we're singing these, these nursery rhymes very early on that really are speaking to like bigger things, but they, you just, it's like the whole, not to make another Dante's peak reference so soon, but you know, the whole frog in the water thing. I don't got to say it on this podcast. Again, you throw the frog in the boiling water, honey, it's jumping out. But if you boil it to death, in lukewarm water, which that's what I feel like equating humans and sexuality and gender is to like some of these things. But we got to get the people there first. And I just went to the end of the beginning. Ugh, my bad. But yeah, so please tell me, sir, um, as I'm in the United Kingdom and I keep getting intermittent um, Madonna-like horrific British accents. Um, how have your views on livestock reproduction influence, or not yours, Jesus Christ, I can't do a British accent and ask questions at the same time. I'm just not Christian, I'm on poor, okay? But how have these on livestock reproduction influence views on human reproduction in the U.S.? So what you said there about like, you know, like seeing, seeing some like pretty raw truths about life by just like living around agriculture, I think would probably resonate with a lot of people who spent a fair amount of time in, in rural America or rural anywhere, right? And, and just like living around farms. Um, it's a, it's a dance of life and death, right? The, you, you come to face to face with the realities of both sex and death when, when you're involved in farming. And humans learn things about themselves, about what it means to be human, about the way the world works, about how nature operates, all of these things by looking at animals, right? So you want to, you want to sort of like think about how it is that being in proximity to animal reproduction might influence how people think about human reproduction and human gender and human sexuality. It turns out that like as farming and, and specifically the organization of animal reproduction undergoes this really startling sort of industrialization over the course of, of you know, a century, essentially in the United States, that there's also a, a pretty fundamental change in how we think about whether or not we can control human reproduction. And in the United States, um, there are a lot of efforts to instrumentalize human reproduction, to put it under what we would call scientific or expert management. 
Um, this is called human eugenics. It results in some some serious, uh, just horrible, horrible um, injustices in American history, uh, things like coerced sterilization. Um, and what's really interesting and what sort of drives my research at the moment is that a lot of this thinking comes out of industrial livestock breeding. In other words, that like a lot of eugenicists, people who were taking the position that it was possible to scientifically manage the reproduction of, of humans through things like marriage uh, registries and anti, uh, anti-miscegenation laws. And the last one would be uh, coercive sterilization. Um, th- those are all, those are always like to manage human reproduction. But the same people who are making these arguments in many cases had, had sort of like, worked previously or done research previously um, within the context of livestock breeding for commercial purposes. Um, and there are all sorts of like delightful historical uh, giblets. They're not actually delightful. They're, they're like creepy and, and terrible and awful and horrible. So I'm being like a little bit sarcastic there. But, um, you know, the, the Journal of Heredity, which is the most important publication of the American eugenics movement, at least um, amongst intellectuals and academics, um, originally is called something like the American Breeders Magazine. Um, the American Genetics Association, which is the mainline sort of uh, scientific research organization that popularizes eugenics, is originally uh, the Human Eugenics Board um, of the American Breeders Association, with the American Breeders Association being an organization um, that claims as its kind of domain the reproduction of plants, animals, and humans. And that sort of refrain of plants, animals, and humans is where these people are really coming from. In a way, it's it's not that surprising. I mean, they're um, they're Darwinian, or they're they're trying to apply certain understandings of Darwin to 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 all forms of life, so to humans and also to animals. And um, they misapply a lot of Darwinian insights, where they have a pretty flawed understanding of of what natural selection is and what artificial selection is. But regardless, um, they, they wind up doing a lot of, a lot of damage and, and, and creating a lot of injustice and suffering in the world as a result. Um, but I, I think about that a lot. I think about um, what it means to live in a world in which um, humans invest so much time and energy in managing the reproduction of non-human creatures um, intervening in that reproduction. And, and I always want to ask the question of like, what does that do to us? What does that do to our understanding of things like life and reproduction? Um, in the United States, uh, we, 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 we bring into life and then we kill, uh, 10 billion sentient creatures, um, every year. It's a, it's a staggering number, right? Most of them are chickens. Um, and I want to know what does it mean for us to be engaged in that really massive, sort of world transformational process of, of reproducing so much life, right? How has it changed us? Um, because it is a very, very different way of approaching life than what, what had come before, what the world was like, even in the 19th or, or 18th century. So basically, in the early 1900s, it was like, and 1800s, it was like fierce to just be like an out and proud eugenicist in America. Like, that wasn't like a weird thing to say. That was just like, oh, I'm part of the ping pong league. I love to play tennis. I find eugenics fascinating in terms of proper breeding. So if we were to bring it back to the Gilded Age, that's like why Christine Baranski is like so worried about her her niece being seen in public, not necessarily because she's like a eugenicist, although maybe she was, but she was like, you can't, like reputation and like what women were seen as, your class, your status was such a big deal. Unfortunately, as with everything in history, it's really complicated. <laughs> Which is why, which is why the nerd, like, I'm, that's like why we said before, we can always go deeper. We can always go deeper. Um, so one of the, one of the themes in Gilded Age, um, which is very familiar to the kind of thinking that we're talking about is an obsessiveness with, um, genealogy and the notion of like bloodlines. Like she was like, their family's been here since the Mayflower or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and so, like, there's an underlying sort of assumption about, um, what gets called like a natural aristocracy. And this is certainly a very common, a common view of the way things work. And that, like, 
it's like really important to have great ancestors. And so eugenicists um, are pretty obsessed with this. Like, like they, they spend a lot of time trying to come up with like genealogical registries of great men, for example, to like, to demonstrate or prove that like great men always have great ancestors. And it's kind it's kind of a bizarre exercise because it's like if like you define great men as like rich men, then it's not surprising that rich men have rich ancestors. Right. But that that doesn't have anything to do with their genes. It has to do with the fact that like they're getting actual literal inheritance yeah. of, of like money. But but they spend a lot of time on this. So they're they're very, very invested in the notion that like greatness and worthy qualities are things that get passed on. What's really, really interesting is that at the same time that this is happening in like the 19th century, as this is happening in a, in, in a, in a television show like, like Gilded Age, right? And that moment when it's set is that like in, in animal breeding communities, there's a sudden like uptick in obsessive focus on the genealogy of what get called purebred animals. And so like in the United States, you have the creation of like, um, breed associations which are, are actually like organized to, to like popularize and champion particular breeds of, of, uh, of animals. The first one is the American Berkshire Association. It's the Berkshire pig. Um, it's a very distinctive kind of like American pig. And if you read these sorts of documents and you read what they're saying about the genealogy of, of their boars, they're using the same language. They're, they're like, they're like, this boar is like so great and, and like they'll say he's, he's like a masculine brow and, and like look at, look at his, his like his fine, fine countenance or this sow is a great mother, a, you know, a great, a great feminine sow. And we, and she comes from a long line of such or this great boar is also the, the son of this prior great boar. And they're creating a kind of like an aristocracy of swine. Do they talk about gay stuff? Is there ever, like, gay pigs? It's probably the saddest story in my archive. Well, it's oh. not the saddest story in my archive, but it is a sad story in my archive. But I should tell it to you. I also have a tattoo that's based on it, um, which I can't I can't show you. Well, I could guess I could show you, but it's, it's on my calf, so it would be a little awkward to try to do this. At least it wasn't on your dick, honey. The way you first said that, I was like, Jesus Christ, he's really going there. But, um, yeah, so that's good. It's just on your calf. That's not that bad. It's, it's totally fine. It's... It's on my calf. He's a very lovely, he's a very lovely pig. What happened to him? A gay pig? What happened? He was gay and he loved other boy pigs. And so they fucking killed him like all the other pigs. I, I, I don't want to tell you that that's what happened, but that's basically what happened. Like they're okay. So that again, you got to remember I'm, I'm, I'm the, I'm the kind of nerd who's always going to go deeper. So I'm, I'm reading through my, my pig breeding magazines from, you know, a century ago, and I'm reading an advice column that this one, this one guy, AJ Lovejoy, uh, writes for other pig breeders. So, so like people like write in and they ask him questions and then he gives them advice about their pig breeding. And Lovejoy gets a letter from these, uh, these two brothers in Colorado who've spent like a bunch of money on this really, really expensive purebred hog. He's going to be the new boar. He's going to be their new, like, um, herd boar, their new stud. They're bringing him in because they want him to just go nuts with all the sows. Just knock up all the sows that this boar can. And so when they put him with the sows, um, it, it turns out that he's not interested in that. That he's, like, very afraid of the sows. He doesn't like to spend time with them. He's very timid. This is how they're describing him. I, I, didn't, I, haven't, I haven't met the pig, so I don't know if it's true. But... He instead likes to spend all of his time nesting with the old boar. So this is the, the, the boar that's aging and is going to, going to pass soon. So he goes and he nests with him and the sessions are pretty irate about this. Or pardon me, the, um, that's the, their name, the sessions brothers, I believe. They're pretty upset about it. They spent all this money on this pig and he won't breed. He won't get with the other, other pigs. Now I, I, I can't tell you and they didn't document it whether or not like, he was getting humped by the old boar, what the story was with the nesting. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, and um, we could anthropomorphize it and, and like assume that there was a kind of like sexual orientation or something like that, but we don't really need to do that. The only mm. thing we need to note is that like, what does Lovejoy tell him? Like Lovejoy looks at it and he's like, well, um, you can give him this herb called Damiana, um, which 
tends to be an aphrodisiac for pigs. And this may arouse in the pig um, some lust and some desire, and maybe he'll go get busy with the sows. But but he's pretty he's like kind of skeptical. He's kind of he's he's uh, he's he's pretty meh on that idea. And he says, no, really, you probably should stop wasting your time. You should castrate him, fatten him up, and send him off to um, to the feedlot. And that's that's a there's a really powerful lesson there that that I think is quite important for people to think about. You know, um, same-sex behavior is well-documented in, in and among animals. There's just no doubt about that. Like, it's, it's extraordinarily well-documented. Uh, the reasons for it are debated. Um, it's contested. Different, different scientists have different arguments about why, why it happens, if it's a sort of functional purpose, if it's something genetic. But it happens. We, we don't have any doubt about that. The context of like industrial agriculture, interestingly enough, is that like it reduces animals um, in some senses to either meat on the one hand, which is just creatures to die, or if they're breeding animals exclusively to their reproductive role, right? And that means that like when an animal doesn't fit its reproductive role, um, it gets immediately slotted into the other. You can sort of like... I suppose, like, exaggerate that story in some senses or or exaggerate the sadness of it. You would want to note that, like, whatever happened to this pig, and he probably got eaten, is the same thing that happened to the overwhelming majority of other pigs. So it's not a unique fate that he suffered. But it is to sort of note that there's an implicit way in which kind of like an assumption or an enforced form of heterosexuality operates in that space. Like, your worth is based on how effective... And... and yeah. So, ew. Well, it's not surprising then that eugenicists also then are really agitated about homosexuality and that they regard like homosexuality as one of the defective traits that needs to be eliminated. And in fact, they posit many that homosexuality should be grounds for coercive sterilization, which is, by the way, like conceptually kind of a nonsensical uh, position because like ostensibly we're not gonna go get like a girl pregnant anyway honey <laughs> right right like, like that that's it's the sort of it, something else is going on there right it's it, it, it the the argument sort of like collapses in on itself but um yeah they the uh there there's a similar there's a kind of like echo across these spaces where uh, creatures are being reduced to their value, their worth, their, their their dignity, if you want to call it that, is reduced to what they can do as far as reproduction is concerned. And that's that's what life is like if you're a breeding stock animal. And by the same token, you look at all of the victims of the human eugenics movement, and the question is always like, what kind of offspring will they reproduce? What kind of traits will they pass on? Um, and their worth there is again being measured according to, uh, their reproduction. And, and that's the justification for all kinds of violence. Really, really horrible, um, abominable stuff. And not just in the United States, the eugenics movement travels. It really has its strongest institutional origins in the United States, but it's foundational in a lot of ways, um, to how things proceed in Nazi Germany. Uh, where they are also explicitly eugenicist. And in those cases, it's not just coercive sterilization. Um, it's also euthanasia. It's also actually putting people to death who are perceived to not have value as reproductive members of society. Um, that history is also, is, is, uh, is really complex. Some of the people who helped that transmission and connect the United States to Nazi Germany, they also got their start in livestock breeding. Really? I could talk about Harry Laughlin, who's one of the figures who's pretty key for this. I mean, I guess I don't know why I'm shocked, but wow. So Harry Laughlin is a guy who grew up in um, rural Missouri. Um, so not, I mean, by Midwestern standards, not too far from where you grew up and actually not that far from where I grew up. I grew up in Indiana. So there's a nice big stretch of Illinois separating us. But um, yeah. He grew up, um, he grew up in Missouri and, um, in his early career, he was like a vocational agriculture teacher at, um, a school that would, that is now known as Truman State University. Oh my God. Yeah. He's a Truman State guy. That's where his, uh, that's where his, his like papers are. Um, I have to go, I have to go to, uh, 
Kirksville, I believe, um, in the very near future. Kirksville, Atumwa, honey. It's Have called Kirksville, Atumwa. Yes, girl. Have... I, yes. I, I mean, I'm not, I, I, my, my hometown, like Kirksville, Atumwa, it's like part of the, like the TV station goes there. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, it, it, um, so he, he's like teaching agriculture. So he's like, he's in the community. He's teaching people how to be farmers. He gets really, really interested in cattle breeding and the genetics of cattle breeding. And this is, this is the very early 20th century. And he writes a letter to this guy, Charles Davenport. Um, Charles Davenport is uh, a scientist, um, at the time who works at, um, the uh at, at an institution in Cold Springs Harbor, New York. He's sort of like the preeminent American intellectual on the question of eugenics. And basically, like Laughlin writes to him and is like, I'm really interested in genetics. Uh, you know, can should I come out there? And and he does, and he travels out and he becomes uh Davenport's right-hand man. And he has this long-term kind of very, very sincere interest in cattle breeding and also horse breeding. He works a lot on horse breeding. And these are his two things that he's super, super interested in. He spends a lot of time over the course of his career. With one big exception, in addition to those two things, he is obsessed, absolutely obsessed with human breeding and human eugenics. Um, he becomes the architect uh, first of the California sterilization law. And this is the sterilization law under which um, the largest number of people in the United States uh, were sterilized. It's a state law in California. He's the architect of it. What years was that? Uh, this is in the 1920s um, when this happens. Uh, and although the majority of those sterilizations actually continued after 1950, which is an important thing to remember. We sometimes think that all of this is the ancient antiquated past. It continues. The majority of sterilizations actually happen after after World War II. Um, and, you know, like Laughlin is um, he's doing that. He's a he's an architect of or heavily involved in lobbying for immigration restriction. Um, and explicitly along um, national origins, racialized national origins. So he's trying to restrict immigration in the 1920s to only uh, people of Anglo-Saxon descent. Um, and, and then um, in the late 1920s and into the 1930s, um, he's involved in ongoing correspondence um, with, with scientists and bureaucrats in what becomes Nazi Germany. Um, about how his coercive sterilization law works. Um, and so there, there is a, there is a line here. Like, uh, like there is a genealogy where he's starting out thinking about how do I organize the reproduction of cattle? And the question keeps getting bigger and bigger. And it pushes him further and further along where he starts moving in the direction of thinking to himself, well, you know, I have a right to decide how cattle will, will reproduce. And I think these people are less, less than humans. So I ought to be able to decide how they will reproduce as well. And that's the sort of like mental logic that he gets trapped in. Um, it, and again, it's a, it's a really sinister story. It's a, it's a really um, uh, kind of appalling uh, set of circumstances, but it's not particularly unique. That history is, is pretty thick. So speaking of that, scary, one thing that I feel like has been a running theme of this podcast is as different as we think that things are, how similar things still are. And just like how, like, in rural America, there has always been LGBTQ people. It's not always been conservative. There has been diverse people just like me in rural America, just like you, just like all people within the LGBTQIA plus spectrum um, that are in rural America. But for reasons like we've already said, if there is access for those people to, like, not be there, sometimes they take it. But other things, people... And the LGBTQI community are really happy in rural America and would never leave and like really love their home and like want to be there. And those people are so often erased and their histories are so often erased. A lot of these um, ideas around eugenics are still around now. Like, you know, the uh, people are still kind of into this stuff and it's not... I mean, even now it's like, you know, 23 and me, this and that, really wanting to understand, like, even how they say in um, the Gilded Age, you know, my, there, whoever was on the Nina, the Pinto, the Santa Maria, like, I feel like my family's like, oh, we were like related to Benjamin Franklin. I feel like there's always, like, some white people always love to say, like, some fucking founding father that they were, like, related to. And what the, I just did loathe it. Okay, so moving on from that, um, 
How, this is really a hard left turn. How have views on human sexuality affected the livestock industry specifically with anti-bestiality laws? <laughs> we're 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 going we're going right for it. Um, so yeah. this is this is really complicated, but I'll try to I'll try to keep it uh, relatively simple. Um, okay, so it it used to be um, in the colonial era that same-sex intimacy was criminalized under a statute um, that was called a sodomy statute or a crimes against nature statute, right? And this was like an omnibus statute that forbade any kind of non-procreative sex act. Um, so, so like sex between two men, that's illegal. Um, but so is like oral sex. We can't do oral sex. That's, that's a form of sodomy. One of the varieties of sex acts um, was also uh, like bestiality, right? So that's actually classed under um, under crimes against nature and, and sodomy statutes. And so a lot of these laws are around literally centuries, right? They're 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 put onto the books in some form or another, going as far back as to like the 17th century, and they sometimes get modernized and updated in various ways. But they continue on basically uninterrupted up until the 1950s and 1960s. And in the 1950s and 60s, you have uh, members of the medical community coming forward um, with various other kinds of social activists who are saying that, like, criminalizing consensual sexual behavior is really, really damaging. And some medical professionals would, would add the caveat and they would say, well, if homosexuality is wrong, it's best treated uh, through therapeutic or medical means. We shouldn't involve the criminal system. So in the 1960s, um, there's a movement to repeal these sodomy statutes. And it's uh, it's not entirely successful, but it's pretty successful. And so a number of states take their sodomy statutes off the books, and a number of crimes against nature statutes uh, bite the dust. So when this happens, a lot of the states didn't realize that they were also decriminalizing um, bestiality. Um, or perhaps if, if an individual legislator was aware of it, they just thought it wasn't a big deal because it wasn't happening a lot. And so basically then what happens is that in the 1980s and into the 1990s, you get uh, really publicized, gruesome incidents of bestiality. And people want to prosecute them. They want to hold the people who are doing it responsible, um, often for, for, for harming animals, right? And they find out that they don't have a way to do so in the law, that a majority of the states in roughly 1990 or so, uh, don't have a statute that criminalizes bestiality. And so they want to do, they want to do something about this. Uh, the, the Humane Society eventually gets involved in it as well, but there's a number of reformers who come forward to pass laws to recriminalize bestiality. And it, it's a little bit idiosyncratic because people, when they see this, they're like, how is it possible that in 1990, this, you know, this state didn't, didn't have a law against bestiality? Well, it's because they had accidentally decriminalized it and didn't realize it for the most part. Regardless, the initial efforts to do this are unsuccessful. And they're unsuccessful um, in no small part because the agricultural lobby, at least in a few instances, is putting pressure on people not to pass the statutes. And the question is why? Like, why would they be doing this? Why would they be saying, we don't want that to be, to be criminal? Well, the reason is this. Like, these statutes had to have very, very precise language about what kinds of acts were forbidden. And so what they were doing is they were taking a general definition for sexual contact and they were applying it in an interspecies context, which meant that not only were you forbidding like human genitals for making contact with animal bodies, uh, but typically for sexual contact, you also forbid um, the wielding of like a foreign object or instrument um, and its use to penetrate like another person. It turns out that at this point in American history, like um, certainly more than 80%, and now it's more than 90% and reaching about 95% of all pigs in the United States are conceived through artificial insemination. In other words, they couldn't come up with like a statute that would pass sort of like the legal test of criminalizing the human behavior they wanted to criminalize without also accidentally criminalizing a bunch of agricultural acts that they wanted to keep legal. And 
I, I, I don't want to like suggest that people who artificially inseminate pigs are like, like have a desire or a sexual desire to do so. For the most part, they're very, very like low paid workers. Like that's actually like the reality of that, of that kind of labor. Um, but I think it's really, really revealing and quite interesting that the way that this gets resolved is that when the laws eventually do get passed and now bestiality is illegal, I think in 49, if not, yeah, 48 or 49 states. I don't know the legal status of it in, in the final couple of states to do this. Um, but in virtually all the laws that have been passed um, since 1990, they categorically exempt animal husbandry and agriculture. Um, so to sort of pivot back to what I was saying before about like, what does it mean to live in a world in which we're responsible for, which we collectively as as the people of the United States are responsible for reproducing 10 billion sentient creatures every year and organizing that sort of reproduction is that it really begins to blur the boundaries of like our own contact and and intertwining with those animals where it suddenly becomes difficult to sort of like distinguish between these things. And that's, that's really the, the, the sort of shock of that moment in the law where if you read your state's um, anti-bestiality statutes, sometimes called a, um, a, animal sexual assault statute, um, interspecies sexual assault statute, you will probably find a categorical exemption for agriculture. And another way of putting this is that the farm lobby is actively rewriting your bestiality laws. Mm. So because this is all so complicated, and, you know, for me, I'm always... I think context is obviously always important in trying to understand, like, what the intent was, what the impact was. But it feels like the more I learn, the more I realize that, like, the intent of the impact, even if they thought their intent was good, it was super bad. And the impact was, like, even worse. Like, just really fucking bad. Like, just so many bad decisions and just more bad decisions. So... What can we learn from farming about what it means to be human and non-human? And what can we learn about what it means for, like, who should be in charge of reproduction, for instance? I want to probably address the last part of the question first, um, which is that I think the the most important sort of lesson that I can draw from this um, is that Controlling reproduction is a way of exercising power. And agriculture is one of the ways in which humans have exercised power over the non-human world. That's what it means to subjugate the interests of, of animals or plants and to put them to our interests. That's an exercise of power. Um, when I think about that question, so like who should be in charge of reproduction? Well, if you're uncomfortable with that subjugation and, and you think that like subjugating non-human animals to human sort of whims um, is a bad thing, then you ought to be concerned with how we control the reproduction. That's where, that's one of the key places that we exercise power. But then it also sort of leads us into some interesting directions because the category of like human versus non-human isn't necessarily like always a stable category. Like not everyone has always been recognized within that category of human. Not all humans have gotten to be human, right? That, that we know from sort of like not only American history, but world history as well. That there have been numerous times in which people have said, well, we're going to treat this this group of people worse because they're not fully human, they're subhuman in some way. And so, like, if we take it from that sort of perspective, then I guess what I would say is that, like, it's incredibly important that we think about how we exercise reproduction, not, not just because we want to serve the interests of animals, but also because, like, we need to have a more sort of, like, comprehensive understanding of how precarious that status of being human really is. That, that the real danger, the thing that we ought to, we ought to kind of like keep in the back of our mind is that we don't know that we will always be regarded as human, right? That these, that these, uh, these categories are not always so self-evident and so transparent that like 
this this long-term kind of engagement with the non-human world tells us just how porous these things are. And so to, you know, to like genderqueer people and to sexually non-normative people and to like, like people like you and me who've like experienced homophobia, like one of the things that we're experiencing there is in a very deep sense, people questioning our full humanity, right? And what I said before, you know, about how, like, what is the premise for questioning my full humanity? Well, it's saying that like how I desire or what I desire is wrong because it doesn't doesn't contribute to reproduction. I see that by and large as, as sort of like pretty interwoven with the same kind of like instrumental view that that like I get to control your reproduction, that I get to judge your worth on the basis of like how I think your reproduction is valuable. I don't take the stance that that means that all farming is wrong. Uh, that's not that's not at all my my political sensibility about this. I, I obviously like we need to generate we need to grow food. <laughs> like farming does that as well. Um, but I would be sensitive to the fact that like we should be very careful and very mindful of of how we use reproduction as an instrument of power. And I and I think that that's something that everyone can sort of think about. That that like. It's part of the story of the food system. Um, if you're not, if you're not uh, accounting for those problems, and if you're not accounting for those exercises of power, then you're not giving it your full thought. One thing we haven't got to talk about so much today, honestly, Gabe, would love to have you back for another whole episode on, and I'm dead serious about this. If we could find some like queer rural farmers from like the 1800s or like 1700s and like do little deep dives into like who they were, what their stories were, like what their political ideas were at the time, like what they, like why they went to the farm. Like, I think that would be so interesting to dive, like to do our own Gilded Age of like, queer farming and like what was going on at the time. Yes. I would um, be very, but <laughs> as far right. So if you, yeah. could, so that's, that's a pitch right there. So let's have you back for a second episode. If you should do some light researching and we'll let's get, 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 I'm obsessed. That means like the beginning, middle and end of like either one person's story or three different people's story. Depends on what you find obsessed. Let me know if you need help researching because mommy will. Okay. Back to this interview contemporary farming, farming of today, how do we see, like, people within the LGBTQIA plus community pursuing farming? Um, and and what's, like, on the forefront of, of equality and equity and farming for people and non-humans? Yeah, well, so just for starters, um, the overwhelming majority of um, farmers in the United States um, are and I, I I don't I don't say this as, as like a judgment or anything like this is just descriptively accurate um uh relatively old like uh 50 plus actually 60 plus is the is the median age um uh white and uh well above um median uh household wealth uh, the median farm household has a has a wealth about um I believe uh mm, roughly seven times uh, the national median. So farmers tend to be uh, relatively wealthy according to USDA statistics. If we were to like parse that and, and try to like figure out how many LGBTQ people are also farmers, um, it would be pretty tricky. Um, and I don't know if there are really good reliable statistics on it. One of the things that I do know is that um, compared to that general population, new cohorts of farmers are somewhat more likely um, to identify as LGBTQ. So there is a growing cohort of people who, who, um, do so identify and want to be farmers. Um, it's likely that they're struggling. Like this is a, it's a, it's a hard business to break into, which is one of the reasons why those people tend to be disproportionately wealthy. Um, but, but they are mm. there. They do exist. Um, and I think it's, it's an interesting question to ask kind of like, why? Like, um, like, why, why are we seeing a growing uh, number of people who are invested in that? Um, and um, there's really good sociological research on this. Um, and it suggests that rural America as a social space is a lot more complicated than we've been led to believe. Mm. Um, that patterns, patterns of family life and, and gender performance are much more complicated. That there's a long mm. history, for example, of 
acceptance of, of gender variance, particularly amongst women. Um, and so that's like, that has a long, deep history in rural America. Um, there's also the fact that like, although we think of rural America as being this hold fast of traditional values, it's actually the case that like, if you look, for example, at comparative rates of um, like children uh, born outside of marriage, uh, that the rates are actually um, higher in rural America in comparison to urban America. Um, and when corrected for like age, it's, it's really, really significant. Um, in other words, this idea that like there's a, a nuclear family and that that's how rural America is actually organized doesn't have a, a tremendous amount of sociological reality. To the extent that those families exist, they exist disproportionately in suburban America, first and foremost, and then to a lesser degree in urban America. So, so there's a lot more going on in rural America as far as family life is concerned than we've been led to believe. It's, it's not this sort of like, you know, plain and boring, uh, vanilla space. It's a much more complicated, um, social fabric that really needs, I think, kind of like serious thought and attention. And that's part of the, part of the reason why I study it, to be quite honest with you, because I think it is badly understudied. It really does need it. And we're really seeing like the divisions and like the lack of understanding for rural America come up in so many different ways. I mean, I think that that's part of like this huge resentment of like these anti-trans bills that are happening so much like the don't say gay bill. There's, there's a lot of like underestimating and just under reaching out to rural people who are being fed so much um, vitriolic garbage about gender and, and, and all sorts of things. And, and there's really no like reparative work that's well, not enough reparative work that's being done. Okay. So as we start to come to an end, how has this work impacted your understanding of gender and sexuality as a whole? Um, so I guess I would just say that I think that um, it's it's drawn my attention um, away from what I would say are kind of like the predictable logics, the assumption that the that um, how we think gender and sexuality is organized in this particular moment in history must be the way it always was. And, and honestly, that's the story of my research is that like I found that when I turned the question of like what does sexuality look like or, or what does the organization of gender look like? And I took it to a place that I thought um, didn't have a, you know, like that, that history didn't apply there, you know, like rural America, what's, what's there to say about that? You know, that's, that's just the way things used to be. Um, that's, that's the natural organization of, of, uh, of a family of gender and sexuality. There are no gay people there. When, when I actually bothered to ask the question and I moved myself outside of that, of my familiar frame of reference, um, I found that I was, I was learning like really, really profound things about not only how much difference there can be depending on the sort of like social context. Um, but that also it, it like, it, it sort of resonated back and, and then made me think differently about, um, how sexuality and gender work in the more, familiar environs or more familiar places. In other words, I thought differently about it, um, which is to say that I thought a lot about like, what about the environment of cities? And, and what about like, mm. what about thinking about the non-human world in, in cities? We, we tend to think there is no kind of like non-human in the city, that that's the space of industry. But in fact, it's all around us. Um, how does that, how does that fit into and, and, and sort of like uh, make us think differently about the world? Um, and I and I don't know that I'm done with those thoughts, but but that's the direction that it's headed in. So I think I read something that said that like in the 70s, wasn't there like one billion like cows or something? And now it's like like the amount of animals that we make and consume has skyrocketed from like the 70s to now. It's like and it's not proportionate to the amount of new people that there are. Like we eat way more meat than we have previously. So what do you think needs to happen to change um, to make a more just food system? Is it is it the USDA? Is it? Yeah. So I I, um, I wrote an article in the New Republic uh, a couple months back with one of my regular co-authors, Jan Dutzkowitz, um, called Abolish the USDA. So <laughs> the short answer <laughs> to you is that the USDA does not pose much of a solution because it's it's largely been subject to pretty intense regulatory capture by a lot of the worst players in agriculture. 
Um, what needs to happen as far as like a more just food system? Um, first and foremost, uh, we need to pay workers better and we need to um, like expect less taxing labor from them. So less work for better pay. That's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is we need to recognize that the, those crucial workers um, are often people who are selling their labor to farmers, right? So farmers may own farms, but they frequently hire agricultural workers. Those workers are some of the worst compensated and most difficult forms of labor in the food system. It also includes the people who work at fast food chains. It also includes the people who work at your local Kroger, right? These are the people who we kind of need to center in our analysis to get better food justice. But beyond the people, this is what I will tell you. Like, no matter how you may feel about it as like something that you do or do not want to eat, no matter what your appetite for meat is, I can tell you right now that the meat that you're eating almost certainly does not reflect its cost to society as a whole. Most meat that is consumed in the United States is produced and priced very, very cheaply because it doesn't reflect the environmental harm, the public health harm, and the harm in terms of the suffering of the actual sentient beings who wind up as meat. And if we priced for those things, meat would be a lot more expensive. And you would probably, I don't know if you would eat less of it. I mean, I wouldn't, I, I don't, I don't eat it now, so I wouldn't eat any more of it. But like most people would probably eat a lot less of it. And my sense about that is that it would be a much better for the world as a whole. So you don't do no crabs, honey. You don't do no fishes. You're, they're just all too sentient. Like what about an egg, honey? I don't want to get too deep into my dietetics because that's not what it's about. I don't, I'm, I'm not about telling people what they, they should or should not eat. You don't have to tell, you don't have to make it on the, I just want to know like what smart Jonathan, people do. I will eat an oyster. Oh, I love an oyster. And I have no problem saying I will eat an oyster. Um, you give me, you sit me down with like a plate of oysters. I just had three last night. Oh my God. Oh, no, no. I, I, I'll eat like, like a Gilded Age, like robber baron. Honey, oysters and martini is all the dinner I need. So, Gabe, if people have listened to this and they are just like, I am infatuated, I am obsessed, I need to learn more, I want to go research with Gabe. What do people need to study? What do people, especially if you're thinking about going back into school, if you're not into school yet, you're fascinated with these issues, or you are not going into school, you just want to learn more about it. How can people follow in the footsteps of people that are researching these fascinating connections like you are? First and foremost, I would not encourage people probably to get um, a PhD in my field of study. Uh, I, I don't think that's actually a good way of doing it. What I would tell you is that there are a lot of incredible public intellectual resources um, that would give you a lot of texts um, and, and that would provide you with a lot of things to read. There are a lot of magnificent books out there, just really, really interesting stuff that's already available. And I'll be quite honest with you, like, um, obviously, like some level of expertise is, is really good and you can only get it by getting a university degree. But there's just like a lot of really phenomenal scholarship already out there and already written on this topic. And um, so if you if you want to if you want to follow me on Twitter, <laughs> your Twitter's popping, though. I love your Twitter. It's so good. People it's also fascinating. have to be warned. I post a lot of my workout videos on there, too, of like, uh, like pushing, like uh, lifting kettlebells. My queens, you won't regret it. He's serving. He's serving muscles. He's serving modern gay historian realness. It's hot. Follow him. You'll love it. But you do post a lot of fascinating stuff, too, which I, I mean, I, I literally read your Twitter. And, I think it's really good. And there's like there are just a ton of really, really excellent um, uh, of other Twitter accounts out there that, that I retweet as much as I can and that I would I would encourage yeah. people to look at. The other thing I would say, though, is that, like, you know, like there's two ways to go about it. Like you could try to, like, hang out with farmers. Like you can do that. Like, I, I mean, a lot of my research starts from that sort of space. It's just like going and meeting people and asking, can I come hang out on your farm and see how things work? Um, I don't know. But I, I mean, I think people should be hungry for those kinds of social interactions. I think it's actually really important. Um, you're not going to have access to some of the spaces that I'm talking about, which are the most industrialized, right? So you're not going to get to go to like an industrial slaughterhouse, like just by being like, hey, can I come hang out here? They're not going to let you in. But it is to say that like you should look for opportunities in your community um, to create relationships that can support the kinds of people who are fighting for the interests of people who work in the food systems 
uh, industry right now. Like, so, so like there Mm. are union organizers, there are, there are food autonomy activists, and those are the people like, like go, go talk to them and, and go find out what you can do to support what they're up to so that you can support like the people who are picketing for better wages, right? Those are the kinds of people that you want to get, you want to get connected to. And when you start doing that, what you find out, of course, is that like, there's all kinds there's all kinds of people. There's there's uh, there's all kinds of LGBTQ people who are involved in this struggle, and they're going to start to tell you their stories. They're going to start to talk about about why, in some ways, like you know, sexuality and gender are also integral parts of that that broader sort of movement and struggle. Um, but that's what I would say. I would say like there's great there's great activism happening right now that is about you know like getting better conditions for the people who feed us. The workers, like the people who do the work of feeding us, and you got to learn about it, and you gotta you gotta get out there and you gotta help those people. That's that's what it's got to be about. Doctor Gabriel Rosenberg, that was a fucking amazing way to end up that podcast. That was so fascinating. You just got us through like thousands and thousands of years of food history and intersectionality in like literally an hour and twenty minutes. That was major. I'm so appreciative of you, your time, your scholarship, your work. Thank you for sharing it with us. We have our assignment for our episode two. We're obsessed. And we love Dr. Gabriel Rosenberg. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Jonathan. It was great to be here. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. Our guest this week was Professor Gabe Rosenberg. You'll find links to his work in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, introduce a friend, honey, and please show them how to subscribe. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at CuriousWithJBN. Our socials are run and curated by Middle Seat Digital. We're always working on things over there to let you know what's going on with past guests, news stories that we're following up on, other things we're curious about. We're having a lot of fun over there. Our editor is Andrew Carson. Getting Curious is produced by me, Erica Ghetto, and Zara Krim. 